You know, sometimes as you look around at the world and you feel the weight within of sin and temptation and the enemy at work in the world, you wonder, why won't it end? Why won't it end in my own heart? Why won't that struggle end? Why in the world is there so much evil and wickedness that just keeps on going? Why won't it end? When will it end? It will. In Genesis 3.15, God promised to the serpent, one day your head will be crushed. One day. My offspring will crush your head. And we're waiting for that day. And at some, uh, to some degree, at the cross, Christ disarmed Satan in many ways. He took away the greatest accusation he could have against you and me, our sin, our guilt, where those are the very things that plague us and the very things that uh, the wages of sin is death, is separation from God. God's anger and wrath towards us are because of our sin. And so the enemy's weapon is always to say, see, because of your sin, God hates you. And, and our own heart tells us that at times. There's no way God could ever love me. He would ever accept me. But that tool of the enemy was robbed from him that day at the cross for those who believe. All that record of wrong that stood against us, all the sin that plagues our heart, the, the guilt that we rightly have, Jesus disarms the enemy from using it against us. Because he can say, you're condemned. And you say, I should be. But because of Christ, I'm not. He was condemned for me. So there's no condemnation left. God's wrath is empty towards me because he put it all on Jesus. And so in some sense, Satan has been crushed a little bit there. But he's still at work in the world. He's still the God of this world and ruling over many hearts and lives and systems. And even as we looked last week, you know, when Paul was giving this warning about um, these wolves in sheep clothing, these Slippery serpents who are servants of the devil. He says, watch out for them. They're still out there and they're still actively trying to destroy you. Pull you apart. Pull the church of God apart where you are um, guarded from sin. Where you are encouraged in the faith. This, the enemy wants to stop that. He wants to rip it apart and he's going to do whatever he can. He's going to, it said, cause divisions on secondary things. Dietary laws like chapter 14. Worship ceremonies, chapter 14. Or he's going to put stumbling blocks in your way. He's going to add things to the faith and start making people require things of you as a Christian. And say, well, you're not a Christian unless you do these ten other things. Those are going to put obstacles in the way of the true gospel. And it's going to uh, discount and disregard your faith. He says, watch out for them. The, the warning is real. The danger is real. But it's not forever. It's not forever. He carries on in this chapter. Let me read it with you. I'll begin at verse 17 so that we can read what we did last week. Uh, this is uh, Romans 16, verse 17. This is God's word. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent 
as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So, in an amazing, it seems like a detour from all of these faithful believers of the Church of Rome that he's mentioning in chapter 16, all of these people worthy of commending, and then all of a sudden he says, warning, there's going to be people who appear to be sheep, but they're wolves. But then he, here in verse uh, 19, he goes back to these Roman believers. He says, for your obedience... And remember, when a Bible verse begins with the word for or therefore or since, you slow down and you say, that's interesting. Because this verse has a connection. We cannot disconnect it from what just came. We cannot disconnect it from this warning to watch out for the, the, the divisive people, the obstacle creators, those who are serving their own appetites, those who are serving the devil. He says, that's connected to verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. Interestingly, because you know what? The Pharisees, if you looked at on the surface or on their resume, they were fairly obedient in 99% of the laws. They were obedient. Paul himself says that as he was a, uh, a Pharisee before he was converted to Christ. Paul says, man, as to the law, I was perfect. There was nothing in the law you could find me guilty of. So I was obedient. But isn't obedience much deeper than that? Because when Christ himself is answering some Pharisees about what is the greatest commandment, you know, they want to make sure they keep the law, right? And he says, what is it? Love. Well, that, that's not just not so simple. You can't just help an old lady across the street, check mark. You can't just put some more tassels on your clothing, check mark. Love is something deep. It's something personal. It's something that actually transforms you. That's hard. So when Jesus says the greatest command to follow is love God and love others, that's what we ought to obey. And so here, coming out of these people who are divisive, what do they love? They love self. So as much as they may have a good resume of, of religiousness, are they obeying the greatest law that Christ said is to love God? Well, no. He says they're not serving the Lord Christ. So number one, they don't love God. And number two, they don't love others. They love themselves. So then he goes into talking about their obedience, the Roman church obedience. And he says, but your obedience is known to all. It's interesting because in the very opening of this letter to the church at Rome, when he's addressing them and he's kind of greeting them, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Firstly, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And here at the end, he says, your obedience is known in all the world. Faith and obedience can never be separated. Their faith was not just in the clouds, something they checked a box on. It was, it was seen in and evidenced in their obedience to the law of Christ. That is the law of love for God and love for others, the love for the glory of God above all things. He says, your obedience is known to all, even so that, he says, so that I rejoice over you. Paul had not met the majority of the believers in the city of Rome, but yet he's rejoicing over their obedience. He knows that they obey 
God and his word. He, he knows that there is a doctrine that they have been taught, verse 17, that they are living in. And, and there's something about this obedience mixed and, and, and coupled with the faith that is known about them that's related to this warning about divisive people, about false converts. Your obedience is known to all. So that, uh, and so then he says, but, so even though you have this obedience, there is a, still a warning for you. Even though you are a person of faith, there's still a warning for you. The warning is strong again. He says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Interesting. Interesting, those two things that he wants of these Roman believers. In their obedience, uh, he's expecting that their obedience produces these two things. I want you to be wise and innocent. Now, we know that we're not all wise. We make poor choices. Not even just in the world and in, in practical things, but we make poor spiritual choices. We sin every day. We do not exercise wisdom when we choose and prefer something over God. We're not wise. And we're definitely not innocent as to what is evil, as to what is contrary to God. And so how is Paul saying, you're obedient, but be careful because there's still something in you that is maybe unwise and maybe not innocent. He says, be wise as to what is good. Well, Proverbs tells us that wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, is to what? Know God. It's to know God. To know Him. Not just know about Him. To be able to repeat facts about God. But to to know Him intimately, personally, affectionately. To know God is the beginning of wisdom. Because if you know God intimately and affectionately, you want to please God because you love God. Like, Somebody could crack the whip on you a thousand times, but it won't change your heart. It might change your behavior. You might start acting differently on the outside, but is your heart changed from the crack of a whip? No. The only thing that's going to cause us to uh, be truly obedient and be truly wise in what is good is a heart that is changed for God and deeper in love with God. I I love him more. I I don't want to displease him. It grows in our affection. We want to build on our relationship with God in our love for Him. At the beginning of that is that wisdom. Be wise in what is good. What is good? How do we know what's good? We know God is good. It's perfectly good. But what else is good? Well, all that flows from God and is not contrary to God. All that brings him honor and glory in this world. Everything that we see in the heart of Christ is that what is good. And and those who are the ministers of Christ, where where even they can say, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so not only is it just purely Jesus, but those who are models after Jesus. Be wise in these things. Because, again, you know, you think, well, Jesus didn't have to make a decision about what we do, about the use of technology. Jesus didn't have to, we don't get to see that example. Well, can we still be wise in in our use of that for purposes that are good? Well, what is good ultimately but God receiving the adoration and affection that he deserves in our own hearts and in our world? 
And so then we ought to be wise, making right choices about what is good and right and good stewardship. What is good but God and all that flows from him and through him and to him? What do we do that is bringing adoration to him and affection to him in our own lives and in the world in which we live? Be wise about it. And so we know because in our own, how do you, when you lack wisdom in an area, say you don't know how to frame a wall, what do you do? You turn on YouTube. You can, everything's on YouTube. But another way is get someone who's done it before. Get someone who's good at it. Someone who you have witnessed do it well. And you get them alongside you and say, can I watch you do this? Can you watch me do it? Can we do it together? That's wise, isn't it? If you want the the job done right, you do it with someone who's done it before. Why do you think God designed the church? Why do you think that he didn't all just save us at the exact same moment? And that we're all not the exact same intellect? And we've read the exact same books? Why do you think we're so different in our passions, in our giftings? Because in order for us to actually be wise in what is good, we need to be together. We need to be with other people and say, hey, you've walked through this before. You've walked through marital struggles before. Can I I come with you? Can I sit with you? Can I pour out my marriage before you and say, what did you do wrong or what did you do right? Let's do this together. Walk with me. That's wisdom. And so then if you want your marriage to be good and glorifying to God, you're going to, in wisdom, come alongside someone who's glorified God in their marriage or in their parenting or in their financial stewardship. You're going to come alongside someone who has set this example of goodness and glory to God, and you're going to be wise in that. You're going to surround yourself with people so that you're not deceived and let off, maybe by people who cause divisions in the church, those who are going to put obstacles, and you're going to think, okay, living my faith means this and this and this and this. Well, do you have people to help you that are walking with you, reading with you, praying with you? If not, then you're going to be quite foolish in your faith. We all need people to surround us and help us. If you don't do that, if you don't welcome that, if you don't call on people to do that, you're going to be a fool. We know that. And so we call others around us. We, we, we realize who God has given us in the church, the body of Christ. And we look and we say, will you come with me? Will you help me to be wise? Be wise. He's telling us to be wise. Not just like, hope you are wise. And hope you learn. But be wise. Do it. It's something you ought to be. So then pursue that. But, but more than that, he says, not just be wise in what is good, but the second part of 19, it says, and innocent, which is funny, right? Because wisdom and innocence are on two different spectrums. We often think of wisdom in terms of the brain and choices. But yet innocence is a, a morality issue. It's a a compass of right and wrong. And so it's almost this full spectrum of who we are in our our choices, our life, our our actions, our attitudes, but also the heart, the, the foundation of that innocence in what is evil. This idea, this word in the Greek in the innocent is only used three times in the New Testament. And it always refers to the idea of being not mixed with. Don't mix with evil. Don't have it mixed in to your life and your heart and your your way. 
Don't be mixed with that which displeases God. Well, so then, not only in what is good, you must know it and be wise in it, but you must also know what is evil. What is evil? That which displeases God. That which is going to rob him of glory. Do you know what is evil? Our problem sometimes is we think what is evil is what the culture has told us is evil. Right? The problem with that is culture's morality has gone down. and it, It's always been bad, right? You can look at the Roman Empire. It's been bad. But there's, there's always things which we maybe say, well, if I'm just a step above where my culture is, then, then I'm not doing evil. It's not the way it is. God sets a standard for what is right, wrong, evil, good. Even though our culture is up and down and left and right, we trust God's word. To tell us what is evil. Not just, well, I'm a, I'm a little bit better than my society. So I'm clearly innocent of what is evil. Don't fall into that trap. Don't buy it. We have so dropped our standards on what is holy and pure and good and right. Because our culture has. So let us not be those people. But instead, let us be innocent. Unmixed with that which God calls evil. Not just in actions or something that we could get caught for. But in our own hearts. If no one else is there, would you still do it? If no one else is there, what would you think, feel? Because oftentimes as evil exists within our hearts and we think, well, no one knows. No one else is ever going to call me out or catch my heart because I was bitter at a person. It doesn't manifest itself in any way yet. Yeah, but it's evil. It's evil. Let's not, let's not be that way. Let's not mix that into our life. Let's know what is evil. And again... One of the best ways to know what is evil is to be in community. Because we're deceived by our own inclinations and we just want to excuse our own sins, right? So we don't feel as bad for things. Well, you can do that really well in isolation. But you cannot do that in community. If, especially if in honest community. The community is ought to tell us and show us what displeases God and help us to separate ourselves from that. To be innocent, unmixed with that which is evil. It's a popular illustration, but it's it's a good one, is the idea of the only way you're going to know counterfeit money is if you know real money so well, if you know it perfectly. So then how do you know what is maybe going to get mixed up in, in life? And in, even in, obviously you're just giving warning about these people who are going to slither in. Because how are you going to know? Well, do you know the truth so well? Do you know the truth so well? Do you know Jesus so well do you know god so well and the, the way we do this is to be wise in what is good and to be innocent in what is evil is to be saturated in the truth saturated in the truth namely god's word through our relationship to christ by the understanding of the holy spirit god is at work in us to to make us know what is good and what is evil to cause us to be good uh, sorry to be wise in what is good and to be innocent as to what is evil. The only way we'll ever be this is by being people who are saturated by God's word. Or else we'll just be influenced by the culture, the people we surround ourselves with who will help us excuse ourselves. Let's not do that. Let's be people who are so saturated. That's why Paul even says, you know, to the church at Galatia, he says, Listen, if anyone comes, and even if myself, he says, if I start preaching to you a different gospel, if I start adding things, to, to the message declared to you in Christ, even if I start doing that, says, run. 
Flee. Do not trust it. But know the truth so well that you can sense when something is off. And of course, we, doing that alone, it's going to take a lifetime to even know in one area of life what's right, wrong, good, what's deceptive, what's not. That's why God designed us so unique, so different, that we can collectively together guard each other from the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews says. That's our job for one another. And it takes the burden off. Because if you think, this is all happening in the midst of spiritual warfare on you. Spiritual warfare in the world. And yet, you're supposed to have all this time and energy and effort to be, be warned and be watching out for those who are going to sneak in into your life and your own heart. You're supposed to be doing what is good and right. And you're supposed to be uh, innocent as to what is evil. How can you bear that? How can you bear it alone? Well, we're not supposed to. We have the, obviously the power and the strength of God in us through the Holy Spirit. But also God in those who sit beside us. And those who can preach God's word to us and bring God's word to bear and say, hey, let's read this text together. Let's study this topic together because I want to know and I want you to know with me what God says. See what God says so that we can be these type of people, so that we can be, uh, as Ephesians says, putting on the whole armor of God to fight off that spiritual warfare of the enemy who's, who's against us. If you're a believer, you know this battle all too well, the battle with sin. And not just the battle with sin and like the battle of guilt and shame and sin and guilt and shame, but deeper than that, the offense against God. Because Christians aren't just wanting to confess our sin and, and run from our sin because it makes us feel bad. We want to confess our sin and run from our sin and be wise as to what is good because it honors God. If we are in sin, it should plague us, yes, with, sin, with shame and guilt, but not eternal. But more so, it should plague us with sadness that we have grieved the Holy Spirit of God, the one who tells us right and wrong. It should, it should wreck our hearts that the God who has loved us so much that we are spitting in his face when we sin. That we prefer something else to him. Do, do we know that? Do we, do we recognize those things in our life? And does that ache our hearts when we sin against him? That's what we ought to know. And so that's the different struggle between a person who's just caught and a person who is feeling like they have offended their God. That's the Christian struggle. If you wrote, read Romans 7, you know Paul himself. This, what we see is like a super Christian. He fought this hard too. He felt the weight of this. He says at the end of Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He recognized within his own body there was just so much evil. So much inclination to self and sin. And he says, I'm wretched. I'm the chief of sinners. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God. Through our Lord, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then he says, Recognizing he's still in this life, still in this world, he says, So then, in myself, in my heart, I serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He recognizes he still served the law of sin. Part of his flesh, his sin nature, was to still serve sin. He hated it. Romans chapter 7 is his constant struggle. He says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And the things I want to do, I can't do. 
He has this real struggle within him, but then he concludes that chapter, yes, with the truth of wretched man that I am, and my body is still plagued, and my mind is still plagued, but yet my allegiance is to God, and Christ will deliver me. And he'll deliver me ultimately. He says in Romans chapter 8, he says, for I consider these present sufferings of this present time, so not just physical sufferings, sickness, trials, shipwrecks, as in Paul's case, being lashed being stoned, what they thought, to death. He says, For I consider these present sufferings in his heart too, at the present time, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. He says later in Romans chapter 8, uh, talking about creation groaning for that day when, when Christ would come again. He says, And it's not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul recognized that as long as we are in this body, we will be plagued with the desire to serve ourselves, to serve sin, even if we know it's offensive to God, even if it brings guilt and shame, even if we feel self-condemned. He knows that one day we'll be delivered from it. One day... He longs, he says, we groan inwardly as we wait for that final adoption and the redemption of our bodies, the, the change of, of our bodies and our inclinations. It's the greatest thing, one of the greatest things about glory, about heaven after we die. And, and when Christ comes again and we are uh, caught up again with our bodies is we will not have the desire to sin anymore. There will be no wrong desire in us. Everything you will want will be pure and good and right if you're in Christ. And that's something I look forward to. Because not only do I look forward to seeing Christ face to face, being able to worship God freely, but that worship will be unhindered by any sin in my heart. Any motivation that was wrong, any thought that displeases Him, our bodies will one day be redeemed. And it's there that one day when Satan will be crushed. Look at verse 20. For the God of peace, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's the God of peace. You think about even these few last few verses, right? This, and to me, it just stirs up turmoil, and struggle and strife. You know, you, there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be wolves after my soul. My own heart is going to deceive me. It's going to be not innocent as to what is evil. My heart is not going to be wise as to what is good. There's just this real struggle within. It really is reflected in Romans 7, as Paul says, this real battle. But then there's this God of peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. He'll crush Satan. And all of his attacks on you, all of the ways in which you are plagued, God will crush him. He will crush him. And this is what I said at the very beginning is this was the promise made to that serpent. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God spoke to the serpent. And he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between uh, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So that's referencing the woman's offspring would be Jesus. One day. And the offspring of Satan, of course, would be children of the devil. All that we are born into until we are redeemed by Christ. And so they bruised his heel. Right? They, they hurt Christ physically. Right? But they did not crush his head. They didn't ultimately finish him. But the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Eve, there'd be the second Adam, Jesus our Savior, he would crush the head of the serpent once and for all. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, it says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser and our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. He's been thrown down, crushed, destroyed thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. Even though right now, it says at the end of verse 10 there in Revelation 12, it is he and all of his uh, minions, really, who accuse day and night. They, the, the demonic spirits would stand before God and say, yeah, but did you see them? Yeah, but did you see that problem? They did. did you see their heart? Like, did you see that action? Man, they're so wicked. Constantly. You think your heart accuses you as you look in the mirror? The demonic world is accusing you day and night, saying, look how wicked they are. And God says, I'm the judge, I see that. I know all, all too well. But that judge was also the justifier in Christ. All of that, the details that you don't even know in the middle of the night that are being accused against you, those very details Christ took on himself. Those very sins of your heart and your mind, Christ took on himself and was himself under the wrath of God for your sins. So that those accusations that are day and night hurled against us before God, they cease. They cease and then one day, Christ will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And so there's a phrase, you may have heard it, you know, if, if Satan reminds you of your past, you need to remind him of his future. He can remind you all he wants of your past. And you can say, yeah, I agree. I'm wicked. And I still am. And there's so much sin in my heart. But remind him of his future. Your future is sure. So is mine because of Christ. Remind him of the future. What is to come? Glory. Redemption. And he will be crushed. He's lost all power. Desperate for you. He's desperate to try to accuse you and destroy you. Destroy all those who would even trust in Christ initially. He's going to try to attack. It's like, you know, the parable of the sower seed, right? Satan comes in and swoops the gospel. Doesn't want us to get a taste of the truth. That those accusations which are true in our own hearts are gone when Christ comes. Satan doesn't want you hearing that. He wants you to be accused and say, you're so unworthy, God would never love you, never forgive you. 
It's the work of the devil. But here, the God of peace, he's the God of peace, remember that. The Prince of Peace came. He is the God of your peace, and he will crush Satan. We long for that day. And until that day, Paul prays for this Roman church. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace. Remember the grace. Think about all those accusations. Think about the trials, the, the struggles, the evil. But remember grace. Remember what God has loved you. God has forgiven you, not because you were able to do anything, include obey or be wise in what is um, good or innocent in what is evil, but it's grace. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is with us to that day. He will bring us to redemption, not we. We will not bring us to redemption. He will. So remember, as you face all of this, remember those, I love this chapter because he like highlights all of these Christians which are totally amazing in all that they do. And then he reminds them to watch their own hearts, reminds us to watch our own hearts. But then he reminds again of the grace, that undeserved love of God, the favor which says, like, if you just come as you are, he'll love you, he'll accept you, He'll forgive you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord? If he's your Lord, you want to give allegiance to him. You want to follow him. You want to do as he uh, desires. If that's your Lord and Christ is your Lord and you're living for him, his grace will be with you. And this is the God of peace who will soon crush Satan. So don't, don't fret. Remember grace. Remember his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Remember these things. As you struggle day in and day out, as you maybe even want to not pray because you know how guilty you are. Maybe you want to avoid the Bible because every time you read it, it condemns you. Remember the grace of God. That condemnation is true. But in Christ, if you trusted in Christ, if you believed in him, he was condemned for you. So the condemnation, as you feel it, as you face it, you can say yes and amen. And it makes you all the more aware of what Christ did for you. So don't ever try to run from like the truth of the scripture or the truth of another believer who's telling you about sin or maybe pointing it out in your life and you say yes and amen. That's awful and wicked and I don't want to do that. I want to be wise in what's good. I want to be innocent in what is evil and I want to remember the grace of my God and the peace that I have because of this God who will soon crush Satan. May God's peace, may his grace be with us as we wait for that day that the Lord Jesus would come. Let's pray. Well, Father, we long for that day. We are tired often in our own hearts, in our own lives, when we wage war, the spiritual warfare against us. It's not a, a war of flesh and blood, but of spirits and principalities and things in our own hearts that just plague us. So we just pray that you would help us to remember grace. Help us to remember that you are the God of peace, that we are at peace with you because of what Christ has accomplished. God, help us to remember that. Help us to know it. Help us to feel it when we are feeling heavy and burdened because of our life. Help us to remember who you've brought us into be. You brought us into Christ, but also into his body, a body of people who are different than us and who are more wise than us in other areas. 
who have not mixed evil in certain areas of their life, help us then to live a life in that community talking about our faith, talking about our struggles, talking about your victories in our lives so we may celebrate you and give glory and honor to you so that we may remember and long for the day in which you will soon crush Satan. Thank you that that reality is final, that it is decided, and that it's true. We long for that day. Until that day, we pray your grace would sustain us. In Christ's name, amen.